0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sharp Tech. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Thompson. Ben, how you doing? Doing okay.
1: Doing okay. Two weeks to go till Christmas, and uh, powering through.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue. Indeed, the holiday is right around the corner, and as of this week, you can give the gift of stratagery. So look out for that. Do you want to tell the people anything more about the gift option they're going to have this week? You'll, you
1: just go, go to the link in your show notes. You can give a gift of Stratechery Plus, which gives people full access to this podcast, access to all episodes of Sharp China, Dithering, and Stratechery, both uh in written form or podcast form, you can, um, I mean, nothing better than, than giving people something that they'll actually use and make their lives better.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm imagining someone sending an email with one of those big red bows that Lexus has in all their commercials. That, that
1: would be a good but, idea. You can, you can go in, you can specify when it will be delivered. So you could put, you know, December 25th and then we'll, we'll, we'll send out an email on that day and, and yeah, it'll be, be a happy day for everyone
0: well listen the holidays are not here yet we're still in grind mode hustle culture hardcore employees only um and today we have a lot to cover is that, is that okay? a foreshadowing
1: of some of the topics today
0: <laughs> no we're actually we're zagging we're not going to talk about twitter and musk today oh, I oh, talk hardcore. About I, 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 oh there is
1: a hardcore angle to both these topics but yes uh There's plenty of discussion about about, uh, Twitter, to say the least.
0: For now, though, TSMC and the future of remote work, those are two topics that could probably be their own standalone episodes, so we'll have to be efficient here. But let's start with TSMC, because there was some news last week. President Biden appeared in Arizona to announce that TSMC is building a second factory in Arizona and will be increasing its investment in the U.S. from $12 billion to $40 billion. And you wrote about the event for Stratechery. We'll put a link to that analysis in the show notes. But before we get to why this news might be a little bit more complicated than it sounds, I want to start with the basics. Like For someone who's not really familiar with what's going on here, can you explain to people how this news fits into the larger CHIPS Act narrative?
1: Well, I mean, it all depends how you look at it. By definition, anything chip-related is going to fit into the Chips Act's narrative because, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, why wouldn't it? The TSMC announcement – so the the original announcement was uh, under President Trump. It was three or four years ago. And at the time that TSMC announced their investment in Arizona, they bought – enough land and the like basically for multiple fabs. So this actually, I, I think it, it's fair to assume won't be the last announcement about this, this location either. So that initial 12 billion announcement was pre chips act uh, the, you know, certainly uh, you well, if you take Morris Chang at his word, who gave a very sort of a uh, blunt interview to the Brookings Institute last spring, there's another link we should put in the show notes because it's worth checking out. I also wrote about it instructor at the time, was pretty clear that look, we're doing it for political reasons. <laughs> the U.S. has basically demanded we we build a foundry in the U.S., so we're doing that. And that plant was uh, what was that twelve billion one? It was five nanometer at the time it was announced. And this is important because five nanometer at the time of the announcement was cutting edge for TSMC. But this wasn't a plant that wasn't going to open until. I think December 2023 is the target date with you know real real scale production in 2024, by which point five nanometers no, would no longer be on the cutting edge. Uh, TSMC mm-hmm. is sort of ramping three nanometer production right now, the sort of next step down the chain, and so it, it's always been a case sort of from day one that what was being built was not necessarily cutting edge and was relatively small. I mean, j- just the the. And I mean, that those numbers are really big, but that's because building foundries are really, really expensive. So in the broader CHIPS Act narrative, certainly it's more advantageous to build in the U.S. these days. I think some of the tax incentives are more compelling in some respects than, than even sort of direct subsidies. But it, this is something that does predate it. And you sort of back up big picture, TSMC is in a really interesting position. We can get into the their business generally, but just from a political perspective, obviously that's a core asset for Taiwan. It's a reason for the US to defend Taiwan. And at the same time, there's it's also like a a real sort of gift that Taiwan can give to its potential allies. So I don't think it's an accident. Yeah. The two places where TSMC is now committed to building new foundries is number one in the us and number two in Japan uh which would be their other and and you know most important ally in a potential conflict with China so there's politics all over this so to the extent that you want to say <laughs> you know how does this fit in the chipsacks narrative well from a political perspective it's all politics I think that's that that's that's where you have to start
0: yeah well and I think when I say Chips Act narrative there are people who want to bring this industry onshore and think that that's essential to our national security going forward. And TSMC, if you're really new to this, it's Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Co. And they are essential to a bunch of different industries. And so I'm wondering if the goal is bringing semiconductor manufacturing onshore for national security reasons, does this Arizona factory actually get us... Closer to that goal. I mean, obviously they're bringing some of it on shore, but like, how should I view this? If if the long term idea is to sort of disperse our reliance and bring a lot of it to America.
1: I mean, I think in the short to medium term, it's it's probably a lot less meaningful than people want to think it is, and I kind of feel bad. I, you know, I was fairly negative overall about this in in my. Piece last week, and I kind of feel like as being a wet blanket. I mean, I, I think the most positive spin you can put on this is, look, it's a start, and there's mm-hmm. going to be some sort of development of ideally an ecosystem, particularly in the Arizona era area. There's going to be more employees in the U.S. that can operate these sorts of things. You know, the importance of TSMC is that they are a foundry; they're a place you go when you have a chip design you want to get the chip made. Whereas Intel, which is the sort of leading producer on the the leading edge of U.S. companies, they've traditionally always just built their own chips. And so they have a lot – there are like all the most advanced factories in the U.S. are specifically made to build Intel chips. Now, Intel's trying to shift its business to also be a foundry, to also sort of build chips on contract, but that's a difficult process for lots and lots of reasons – and so yeah, this stuff is now going to be on shore and you know, that's, you know, all things considered I, a good thing. What I'm skeptical of is if there were actually some sort of conflict, how quickly do these factories become worthless? Like, you know, if, TSMC is heavily disrupted in Taiwan, which, which would happen in a conflict. Like these aren't factories that are just sort of standalone sort of entities. That's what
0: I was going to say. They're still dependent on Taiwan, right? Well,
1: they're not, it's not just they're dependent on an entire global supply chain. I mean, like we've talked about ASML, like these high end UV scanners and things along those lines. Those are piped into ASML, and ASML is tuned in and running them. And there's, you know, a whole ecosystem that is very heavily integrated. And it's definitely an analogy for the question of like decoupling you know, with China and sort of in general. We've had 20 to 30 years building up capabilities and supply chains that are so deeply integrated and interconnected. It's going to be very hard to build something that doesn't have any sort of dependency on either China or Taiwan. And number two, It's very difficult to manufacture an economic incentive to do so absent a war. Like like if we were truly cut off from Taiwan and cut off from China, we would have to figure out all these pieces that are impacted by that. But until that happens, this stuff is so complex and, you know, the, you know, not to get all like philosophical, but the invisible hand of the market guides all of these tiny decisions on the margins. And you're going to have a very difficult time unwinding those sort of decisions that have been made over 30 years sort of by Mm -hmm. diktat or by passing an act with some sort of incentives. And I think the real challenge with this is absent the geopolitical threat, there's just – this doesn't really make sense for anyone. (laughs) And and so, you know, is the threat specific enough and pressing enough and what needs to be done discreet enough that we can – address it, I I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's easy to sort of be skeptical about it.
0: Well, yeah. And, and there's another aspect of all this that I find pretty interesting and that's, are we focusing on the right areas of manufacturing capacity? Like Lisa Sue CEO of AMD said, quote, the entire semiconductor ecosystem is ready to step up and work together. The industry has been through so much in the past few years Having more geographically diversified capacity is so important. At the end of the day, what we want to do is ensure that our most important chips have a resilient supply chain. And what I'm wondering is, are these advanced chips the most important chips to our security? Like they're they're talking about making chips for Apple and AMD and Nvidia and all of these cutting edge companies. But there are also what you call trailing edge chips that touch all sorts of other industries that are much broader than like the latest iPhone 14 Max. And, and so I'm wondering how you would balance it if you were in charge.
1: Well, there's a few things going on here. So number one is what I think the, this, new, so this new fab, the new increase was for a three nanometer fab, which again, three nanometer production is starting in Taiwan now. Or it's it's happening now in Taiwan. So when this new fab opens in 2025 or 2026 or whatever it is, again, it's going to be at least sort of a generation behind. So just just to put be clear about sort of what's going on here, uh, my suspicion is <laughs> like this is gets so complicated. It's very easy to get sort of deep into a wormhole. But one of the big advantages that TSMC has relative to say an Intel move this foundry model is TSMC is built to be very, very flexible and sort of responsive, both to customers, new equipment, etc. And one of the reasons that, you know, because they, 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 they're contract manufacturer, they're, they're not designing the chips, they're using other people's designs. Now, obviously, they have a huge sort of tool set and, and toolbox of, you know, different IP that you can put in the chips. That's all a big part of it. But a big factor why they can pull this off is because they're so centered in Taiwan. You kind of have a trade-off between somewhere in your supply chain, you're going to have some sort of rigidity just because you have to do this very high-precision sort of manufacturing. So the rigidity in the TSMC system is that everything's in Taiwan and mm-hmm. that allows them more flexibility in their interface with customers, in the designs that they do, and the equipment they incorporate, all these sorts of things. This is in contrast to an Intel, which Intel has long had worldwide manufacturing. But what Intel would do he says, Intel, these fabs are mostly making the same chip, right? Like Intel's making, you know, their CPUs, and they're making them at scale and for themselves. And so they would get a fab set up on the newest sort of process. They would design that fab... And then they would perfectly replicate that fab around the world, like all the way down to like the location of the urinals in the bathroom. Like you would walk into one facility in like Israel or in Ireland or whatever. It'd be identical to the facility in Oregon where they like developed it or whatever it might be. Like It's called copy exactly. It's like it's like an actual thing. And so that's the rigidity in the Intel model. Right, which so they can have flexibility in geographic location because they have the rigidity elsewhere. You you need that rigidity in the model somewhere because you're doing this exceptionally high precision manufacturing where you have to get it right. And Mm -hmm. so, how is TSMC going to build these in Arizona? Now, this is my speculation. I don't know this for a fact, but my suspicion is what they're going to do in Arizona is actually a little more like the Intel thing. I don't think these are going to be foundries where they expect to service a 1,000 different customers with a high degree of flexibility and small order sizes and things on those lines. They have three really big customers. Those three really big customers – actually, they have like four or five really big customers. But the three that are U.S. companies are Apple, the biggest by, by a significant margin, NVIDIA, and AMD. Those three companies, of course, would love to say, just for a pure PR reason, yeah, our chips are made in America. I mean, Apple in particular,
0: right? Like, it's the first thing Tim Cook did on Tuesday last week, came out and tweeted, made in America, Silicon. That's Apple right. Silicone. A nice little Good distraction
1: from the fact that their phones are utterly dependent on China, right?
0: <laughs> and <laughs> right. And got, not it, shipping in part this, this holiday season I mean, because it, of it, the China situation. It's
1: notable that, you know, when push comes to shove, it's Taiwan that has to pay the price here, not China. Um, but Regardless, so I would bet these factories are going to be really just set up to make Apple, AMD, and NVIDIA chips. They're not going to be super flexible. Now, again, this is speculation on my part, just sort of thinking about what makes sense from from all these sort of companies' perspectives. And so you have this situation where, yes, you have more cutting edge sort of manufacturing. Ideally, Intel will be so caught up by that. Again, these are a generation behind, so you know in, Intel could certainly be be caught up at this point, but You're getting advanced manufacturing that's still sort of dependent on Taiwan and tied into the global semiconductor ecosystem. And it's good, but I'm not sure it's the best allocation of resources. Like, what would I do if I were in charge? If you were president, what
0: would you want to do?
1: So one of the big weaknesses that... So we have a huge dependency on Taiwan. We have a dependency on Taiwan, not just for leading edge chips where Intel is doing its best to catch up. But we also have a huge weakness in trailing edge chips. These are the the old small chips where TSMC would have built a fab in say 2005 or 2010. That makes these chips. That fab is long since depreciated. So they're making they're, they're they still operate, they're still making chips, but those chips are very cheap and they could but they're still cash flow positive because these Fabs are fully paid off. And these are the chips that go into things like cars, that go into things like appliances. Basically, there's a lot of chips that aren't necessarily on the absolute cutting edge that are super important. Now, there is zero economic incentive to make these new trailing edge fabs because, again, the reason why they make sense economically today is because those fabs are fully paid off.
0: In other words, those fabs have been built and are sitting there in Taiwan. So if they're just going to be sitting there, let's at least continue to produce these chip low margin, these cheap low margin chips. Well, no, they're high
1: margin because they're fully paid off, right? They're, 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 okay, yeah. Yes, yeah, okay. so, but, but they're low revenue. That's the key thing. They're low, low revenue, high margin, and so TSMC dominates this market now. The big increase in this market is in China because, again, China can make the old chips, right? It's not – where they're sort of limited is in the most advanced chips. And so there's a lot of increase in Chinese capacity in this area. And a concern I would have if Taiwan were cut off from the US is we would be completely cut off from these trailing edge chips, and the problem is we couldn't get toasters or whatever it might be. Right. We could get, like the, You thought that car problem was bad during, during, during the pandemic. It would be well, a million times worse, right? And so you have a situation where you have a real potential risk in these trailing edge chips. You also have zero economic incentive to address that risk. That seems like an excellent use for government subsidies where we're going to provide money to build foundries that provide needed diversification that are not economically viable and so Mm -hmm. that that's that's like a a definitional description of when subsidies are sort of important so that's my would have been my number one sort of application now when it comes to leading edge like intel was out there like threatening people like look you better pass this chip stack and give us money or we're we're gonna stop building intel has to build Leading edge foundries, like, or they're going to cease to exist as a business. Like, they they don't need. Sure, they will take all the money they can get, but they already have the economic incentive to figure it out and to build these sort of chips. And so, that's one of my first criticisms of the Chips Act is I would have much preferred to have seen a much more focus on this trailing edge thing again, just because it's a place where subsidies are kind of the only way to solve this problem.
0: Yeah, well, and, and we should be clear, it's not baseless speculation on your part when we start to imagine who the biggest customers are going to be. Like Biden made his remarks last week and then met with a group of executives, including Morris Chang from TSMC, Tim Cook from Apple, Jensen Wong from NVIDIA, Sanjay Moroda of Micron, Lisa Su of AMD. Like, it's sort of the the five or six families of like leading edge tech yeah, I mean, <laughs> like so it doesn't families, take yeah. like no. a big it's not a big leap to say all right well this is who this factory is going to be serving at least initially
1: right and and there is an argument where look in the very long run these one generation behind fabs are going to be trailing edge fabs at some point in the future so I, there is a question of like what's your timeline for risk that you're trying to ameliorate here is it in the next five years or is it the next 15 years because in the next 15 years well if we think nothing's gonna happen to Taiwan for the next X number of years, then sure, maybe you know, we'll have moved past the trailing edge by that point. Like the auto companies will have shifted from 90 nanometer chips to 28 nanometer chips, wherever it might be. But again, we're not building 28 nanometer chips here. We're building three nanometer chips, which are very right. expensive. Like like one of the one of the underappreciated things that has happened in chip manufacturing is around 14 nanometer or so. It used to be the case that building faster chips were also cheaper. And so you, it was actually better to get the faster chip because, you know, when you could just fit more stuff on a wafer, then mm-hmm. you know, you, you could actually make it cheaper. So it was amazing. It was like you got you got a faster chip, a more efficient chip, and a cheaper chip all at the same time. Several generations ago, we crossed a line where that was no longer the case where it costs so much to build these foundries that the chips were markedly more expensive. And the reality is, is there's a lot of applications that don't need chips that are as fast as what's going to be produced in these factories. Like, like, like now there are things that do, but there are a lot of things that don't. And so in the long run, are these going to be the sort of like bog standard, stick it in a car sort of chips? I mean, for self-driving, sure, but for you know, operating your,
0: your window, maybe not. The one thing that I worry about reading all of this is it, it sounds like this is great for Apple, this is great for AMD, this is great for all of these companies who have their own incentives to diversify their supply chains. But if the goal is like long-term security of America's economic interests, then this is not the right way to do it. Yeah, I mean
1: it's again, it's not necessarily bad, but it's I don't know that it's really the most efficient use of resources. The um the other thing I would have done with the CHIPS Act is I would have much preferred to see it structured instead of just giving money to like Intel and say, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you know, we really hope you succeed in building more, you know, these cutting-edge chips. I would have structured it as being a guaranteed buyer what intel needs are customers at this state like there's no incentive for a cutting edge like an amd or an nvidia or an apple to buy intel's newest chips or to to be a customer of their foundries but you need a customer to get the volume to sort of keep moving down the learning curve and to make these these viable i would rather the u.s government be basically a guaranteed buyer of these sorts of things. And then also it's like, you have to actually succeed in building this, and then we will buy right. your chips, right? There is a pot of gold, but you have to actually cross the bridge to get the pot of gold, as opposed to we're going to give you the pot of gold and hope you cross our fingers that you cross the bridge. Those are the two ways I would have structured it is guaranteed buyer for cutting edge stuff, and then definitely subsidizing the, the, the trailing edge stuff.
0: And the second prong there—that's what we did with development of the vaccine, right? That was part of Operation Warp Speed, where we like guaranteed to be a buyer. I
1: think that sounds right. Um, I, I didn't. It sounds super, familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't hold me
0: to that. But um, I mean, that, the logic there does make sense. So, another basic question coming out of last week's event. Do you think this could actually come online by 2024 20, and then the other fab come online by 2026?
1: Sure, TSMC is still projecting those dates, and I think they have been more reliable in their date predictions than, say, in Intel. So, yeah, but I, there's definitely challenges for sure. I mean, you know, I, I kind of mentioned it in my update, but there's a fair bit of scuttlebutt, you know, here in Taiwan just about. Cultural clashes and challenges. I mean, the the reality is, you know, TSMC here in Taiwan is obviously a very prestigious company. It's a great place to work if you're super smart and super capable. It's a dream job, and you go there and you'll get you know subsidized housing and and you'll you get to say you know tell your in laws that you work for TSMC and it's sort of a great thing. But it's a brutal job, right? Like, there's an mm-hmm. aspect, like, you're working long hours. This stuff is really, really hard. You're on call all the time. And from what I've heard, there has been some tension both in terms of the Arizona stuff and also in terms of like they're working with Intel more, you know, because Intel is manufacturing some of their chips with TSMC because they're so far behind that is kicking their red because they are with TSMC. And it's there's a lot of frustration about like, look, you're taking how how many weeks of vacation? Like, what do you do during the summer? Like uh your ski trip where? Uh and, and again, I'm not defending or say making a normative statement i just, just just a fact
0: there's no value judgment on one side or the right other, it, but yeah there there is there is sort of a a tension
1: here and i think that's you know that's come up in reporting in a letter that they sent to the commerce department saying like, look we're having a hard time finding you know qualified people qualified people <laughs> and that qualified people isn't just sort of like a the right education sort of thing it's like a look there's a way we work and you know they're actually shipping a bunch of taiwanese people there like they're they're building like an entire like village uh for for wow. folks to live there and and that's you know again maybe that's a maybe that is actually one of the positives where a development of talent and an ecosystem that can really you know work in this area is something that the u.s needs and and i think that's actually probably the most optimistic take on this is yeah okay sure they're plugged into tsmcc now if tsmc's headquarters are destroyed they may not be very useful because they've lost their connection to the mothership as it were and yeah it's a generation behind but we got to start somewhere and that Mm -hmm. is i think probably the most optimistic take on this and it's an analogy for lots of stuff right like This stuff went abroad for a reason. There just aren't those kind of jobs in the U.S. generally anymore in all kinds of areas that are like this. And there's a broader sort of question about globalization or culture or lots of stuff that goes into what it will take to bring this stuff back on shore. But this is definitely sort of the tip of the spear in that regard.
0: Yeah, well, and it is pretty interesting. It wasn't just jobs that went offshore. It's like after doing this around the world for twenty or thirty years, the skill set necessary to do it effectively here just doesn't really exist, and like the processes don't really exist, and so training a workforce and establishing a culture it's not surprising that it doesn't happen overnight and you know morris chang was pretty honest about that when he spoke at the event on tuesday he, like he his remarks were a little bit dour i would say i don't know if you saw them but i'll i will read from nikai asia uh chang had always dreamed of building a chip plant or fab in the u.s because of his own background he was educated and worked in the u.s for several decades But his first experience did not go smoothly. It was, I thought, a dream fulfilled, Chang said. But it ran into cost problems. We ran into people problems. We ran into cultural problems. The dream fulfilled became a nightmare fulfilled. It took us several years to untangle ourselves from my nightmare. And I decided that I needed to postpone the dream. And obviously, I think everybody involved in TSMC says this time it's going to be different. But... A lot of those challenges are still front and center as they try to bridge the gap there. Yeah,
1: just for broader context, what Chang's referring to is TSMC has a plant in Oregon. Uh, that, right. And they, it was opened around 2000, and it's never been very profitable. Now, the way this stuff works is because almost all the largest portion of the cost is in the initial build out. They still run it because once you've built it, you might as well sort of keep running it. But there are ongoing unit costs as far as your workforce and and things like that. And they've, you know, Morris Chang in particular has been very honest about this. I mean, you thought he was dour. This again, go go back and look but at the that. The
0: Brookings talk is even more. The dull, Brookings yeah. talk
1: is very straightforward. Uh, it's it's just it. The unit costs, how much it costs to produce one chip, are just not remotely competitive with what it costs them in Taiwan. And now there's there's other reasons beyond just culture and workforce stuff. Uh, Taiwan in general, the salaries are very low here for lots of complicated cultural and political reasons uh taiwan also has a real currency advantage uh taiwan i think all evidence suggests is a one of the worst currency manipulators but you know because can you (laughs) explain
0: that a little bit every time we talk chips you you reference their currency manipulation and without going too far it sounds like you don't want to make any like explicit accusations but i'm just curious what you're alluding to
1: The, the the taiwan dollar is i think it's much lower in value than it probably would be if it were allowed to float freely. And the, you know, <laughs> there's kind of a, it, it, it's kind of a running joke among some of the expats here. There's uh, always like a, a a daily article that's generated about the, you know, what the exchange trading was in that day. And it's like, oh yeah, the, the the NT dollar dropped to XYZ. And then the last hour, it suddenly increased back to XYZ, <laughs> which is everyone knows. It's like someone coming in and uh, changing the price. And, uh, Basically, the long and short of it is that chips made by TSMC in Taiwan are likely much cheaper than they would be if the exchange rate were fully float- clean. So that and okay. they sell in dollars, and and they and so that that's a real advantage. So uh, for from for TSMC, so they they sell in U.S. dollars, yeah. And so their cost in- their costs are in low Taiwanese dollars, both because right. from from a currency perspective, and also because it just labor is much cheaper here. Again, for other reasons not just sort of sort of currency reasons and so there's a real cost advantage in general in taiwan so this isn't just a u.s sort of having more expensive lazier workers like i think that that Mm -hmm. that's that's uh, there is some aspect to that but it's not the only story here for sure um but the long and short of it is this they've had this plant in oregon that is not worked out uh again that was way back in like 2000 and so they never did it again And when it came to talks doing, again, Morris Chang was opposed to it because, again, she's like, we tried this. It doesn't work. This makes no sense. The only way to justify this from a TSMC perspective is politics, where Mm -hmm. the U.S. was insistent that they build in the U.S. Again, it's a tricky decision for TSMC and the Taiwan government because to the extent there is diversification outside of Taiwan that reduces – the incentive, the incentive to defend to Taiwan there. But at the same time, Taiwan has to play very nicely with the U.S. because their only real hope against Chinese aggression is the U.S. coming to their defense. So it's a very difficult spot to be in. And so that, that also ties into why I think these plants in Arizona are probably going to be relatively focused plants that are are not necessarily just because like that's the most efficient thing for them to do. And uh, mm-hmm. and so yeah, but again, you, you get into these really fine grained details of chip manufacturing and flexibility and capabilities and all that sort of stuff, and none of that actually, I don't think, resonates necessarily with politicians, right? Like just like, hey, we have advanced chips in the U.S., we can have a press conference, and is you know, it's, it's it, I found it kind of amusing that all of these announcements came from the White House, not from TSMC.
0: Yeah, and I'd say that's where I start to ask questions about like, A, who's driving this? And B, who should we be criticizing about the misaligned incentives and like ambitions here? Because like, I understand- to, to be
1: fair, I mean, if they are doing something that does not make economic sense, that is in some respects a justification and defense of government action. Because the reason you would have the government step in Is precisely to achieve a result that you feel is important for reasons beyond just the economics, right? Again, the economic incentive is just to keep it all in Taiwan. And that's the incentive for TSMC.
0: So but if you're gonna go through all of it, the big dog and pony show here, like why would you do all of that just to help Apple and NVIDIA? Like I I just think that's short-sighted and it it's a little disappointing. It's not what I was imagining when I heard the CHIPS Act was passed. This past summer. And I know the TSMC stuff predates some of it, but it's all sort of the same long-term goal and security interests. And so I'm not sure why we're just narrowing the focus. Like I understand even from TSMC's standpoint, it's so much easier to just have a narrow focus where you can make your operations as efficient as possible and try to make up some of the lost profits that way. But again... America should want more variety than it seems like they're going to be getting from these fabs.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, it's tough because it's very easy to sit here and poke all kinds of holes in this. And I do think it's a legitimate defense. Say, look, we have to start somewhere. And also it's a legitimate defense to say, I don't know if we can depend on Intel on the leading edge, right? Like and and Intel is like Intel right now, the crap's really hitting the fan. Like all the reasons why, People like me have been writing about how Intel's in trouble for years and everyone, you know, sort of people on Wall Street are like, look, their profits seem fine. It's like, yeah, the problem is that it's going to show up like there's a huge lead time for this stuff and all those profits are going to go away. Guess what? The profits that everyone was pointing to that are mostly from the data center almost completely gone last quarter right? like, Mm. And and now TSMC has a new server chip out that's just so much faster than what Intel has. And Intel has a new one coming, but it's probably going to be slower and it's also late. And there is an aspect of like, look, we can't be only dependent on Intel as far as leading edge. So getting TSMC into the US, again, even with all these sort of limitations and the fact that even this 40 billion investment, it's not sufficient to apply just Apple, right? So these things are so expensive to build that You know that's it's a relative drop in the bucket, and that that's TSMC's capex for like one year, and but this is an investment over many many years, right? Because they're they're going to be investing tons elsewhere. Uh, So look, I don't feel it's quite right on my side to just be a complete Debbie Downer about this. Like like the to the extent you think it's important to diversify out of Taiwan, this is absolutely a start. We're in a better place than we were before, but it's also I did feel a need to push back on this sort of there's a bit of triumphalism like problems fixed now it's like no like we're not not even not even close
0: yeah well and if you talk to people in washington they're like look we passed the chips act and we're bringing this stuff on shore and we're going to be more secure long term as a result and i want to believe that but i can also see some of the holes in the logic let me ask you this is it easier to build and operate trailing edge fabs than it is to build leading edge fabs yeah for like, sure the...
1: yeah it, it, okay. there are trailing edge fabs in the u.s mostly uh run by global foundries which was a you know used to be the amd's manufacturing arm it was spun out uh like 12 13 years ago and so we do have those sort of fabs in the u.s but yeah for sure it's it's a known technology that's why china's doing it right because it's, right. it's relatively simple it's, it's relatively you know sort of inexpensive um and yeah, I do think that should be more of a focus. Um, again, it's a start, right? It, it, it's no, a start. No, yeah, it's but- a
0: start. And look, I'm in Washington, D.C. I'll get a note over to President Biden and we can get the wheels in motion for the trailing edge. Final um, note here, Morris Chang, and this is the the particularly dour part of his remarks last week. 27 years have passed and we've witnessed a big change in the world, a big geopolitical situation change in the world. Globalization is almost dead and free trade is almost dead. A lot of people still wish they would come back, but I don't think they will be back. Do you have any reaction to that quote? Like what what comes to mind? Well, for sure, it's a forward-looking statement. I think
1: more than a – the stuff that's built is not going to – like the integration with China is not stopping, right? The integration, the dependency on Taiwan is not going away. The big question is sort of investment going forward, right? So if you're, you know, how much investment in new capacity or new ability are companies going to make in China looking ahead? And for Taiwan, mm-hmm. how much are they making make in Taiwan? Taiwan is one of the biggest, I sort of, you know, mentioned it in passing with Apple, but you know, Apple is, hey, if we can reduce our dependency on Taiwan, let's do it, right? I Maybe mean, Taiwan is sort of stuck in the same boat because of these sort of risk factors. And that's a bummer. It's it, it's a bummer, I think, for for. It's certainly a bummer for Taiwan, but again, it's going to be so hard to unwind what has already been done. And maybe that's a good thing, right? Like the, you know, maybe that remains the biggest reason why my percentage view of a chances of a conflict are very low. And I think lower than the attitude in Washington, D.C., just because this stuff over 30 years, this stuff gets so tied and no, like, Who can actually trace through all of the different component pieces that go into some of this stuff, right? Like you have suppliers Mm -hmm. like multiple levels down that go into making these chips or making an iPhone or making a stroller or whatever you can think of that. All of those pieces need to be be reworked and redone in a world where you're not going to be dependent on China or you're you're you can afford the risk of conflict in Taiwan and also again Taiwan is not motivated to get away from that world where there's no longer a dependence on Taiwan.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well I mean there's no question that the mutual dependence has been a bulwark against conflict and and I think still acts as a bit of a security blanket and insurance policy against like a true standoff between the US and China because there would be mutually assured economic calamity. And um and probably a recession for the entire world in that scenario. Right. I mean, so. you
1: see an, you see an aspect of this with Russia, where dependence on Russian energy is obviously causing massive problems in Europe. Now, that's mm-hmm. for a pure commodity, right? Oil from Saudi Arabia or from the U.S. is, you know, oil, the same as oil from from Russia, you know, it, broadly speaking. Right. The you know, when it comes to this specialized sort of things, there there's you know,
0: there's no replacement, (laughs) there's no
1: replacement. Right. And so uh, the specialty things go very, very deep in all sorts of ways that probably no one in the world, it's probably impossible for any one person to hold all that sort of in their head and to sort of be aware of it.
0: Well, speaking of unknowable futures, uh, a lighter topic, but uh, no less relevant in the United States. Every few weeks, it seems like there's a new announcement from a billion-dollar tech company that's resetting its remote work policy. A few weeks ago, it was Snap and Evan Spiegel who said he wanted to see employees in the office 80% of the time, and that's the new policy um, starting, I think, in February. I want to get your thoughts on where things stand now with remote work and that whole conversation But first and foremost, you're a fun person to ask about this because a lot of your life changed because of remote work. So can you explain that part of your story? Yeah, well, it makes me a
1: terribly unreliable narrator about this topic. So put that up front. This is very much (laughs) speculative on my part. Uh, I did move back to Taiwan once I started working for, for Automatic, which is a fully remote company. And... It was it was really interesting. I mean, there's a. I think one thing that is underappreciated is there's a lot of investment in sort of infrastructure and processes that goes into making this work well. So mm-hmm. one thing with automatic, for example, is it, it's a very sort of textual written culture, and it's everything's asynchronous, and so there were like three levels of. Communication that, that you would have. So number one, you would like once a week your team would have a meeting. I mean, back then we used Skype, uh, those pre pre teams or pre pre Zoom, and you know just sort of touch base. Well, actually, let's we'll, it, we'll, at the highest level. So how do you get to know your teammates? Well, twice a year your team would get together somewhere in the world. So we had to okay. get together in New Orleans. We had to get together in Rome uh where the whole team would get a big Airbnb, everyone would go in. Theoretically you were there to like plan for the next year. Really you went there to sort of like just eat a bunch of food and see some tourist sites and get wasted every night together. And the idea was this is really just like building camaraderie and culture and 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 that sort of bit because the actual mm-hmm. work was sort of done at home. And so, you know, Matt Moldweg would always talk about look our we're not, this isn't really a cost saving thing because we spend so much on these trips that it makes up for our office space that we don't have. And then there would be. A, can
0: I just say, look, I really enjoyed the stratecary team meetup at Vegas Summer League, but can we do it in Rome next yeah, year?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was a good time. Lots of good food for sure. Uh, you know, there, there was always a company wide meetup once a year, so I think we we did it in like Santa Barbara. But I think right now, because Automatic's got much bigger. What they do is they mm-hmm. go to like a ski resort. Uh, in, in like, and just in like the fall, the right. Cause there's okay. like, no one's there and no one wants to go there. Then you get lots of capacity and the, the advantage of automatic size, look, this isn't necessarily a money saving thing. It's a talent acquisition advantage where we right. can get people that want to live, you know, live and work remotely. And, uh, it's a to sort of invert our concert. So number one, you have that, 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 that small in-person component, then you would have like weekly meetings. Where everyone would get on a video call at the same time. It's always tough to schedule because you would have like our, our team was literally scattered all over the world. Then you would have uh, actually Automac has this internal uh, WordPress theme. It's called called uh, P two, where it's like a blog, and you write. You know, you every day, every team. someone on the team is deputized to write a summary of everything the team sort of accomplished and did that day. And what's interesting about this theme is like all the comments uh, are are sort of right there on the front. And it's meant to be sort of like almost like a message board sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then you could have a – you could – every morning people would start their day. They'd have an internal feed of like all the teams in the company. And they could just go through and read and know everything that's happening in the company. And so they're just sort of like – that was sort of a real discipline of every day sort of writing that, posting that. Then there would be discussion and you could always be aware of what was going on. Then the actual conversation all happened in IRC, which I mean, I think basically Slack before Slack where there's, and all this was all saved in archives. You could always go back and find it and search it. And then again, everything was sort of asynchronous where there was no assumption that someone would respond to you immediately. And so you had to like, think about what you needed from someone. You had to like, get all the details. And it it was, it's a very different culture than sort of the in-person run into some of the water cooler or stop by their desk or, you know, that sort of thing. And there was a lot of discipline around having alternative tools and means to sort of accomplish Mm -hmm. that. And I think that was something that number one, it worked, it worked well, but also that was something that a lot of companies I think struggled with when the pandemic came, because they just tried to shift everything that they did that was in person to suddenly being remote instead of being, we'll have Zoom meetings now we'll do XYZ. Right. And it didn't quite translate right because so much non-explicit like knowledge sharing that happens sort of in person. Th- there wasn't processes and habits around writing it down such that a way it's visible and accessible to anyone at any time. And so I think to the extent companies succeed remotely, it will require and depend on really changing ways that you operate to support that in sort of a meaningful way. In reality, I think the way it actually worked is most companies to the extent they support remote work. It was still mostly live. You had to be in a time zone where you could be in the same time zone as your folks. Cause it, mm-hmm. it's hard to shift from being, a, uh, you know, working synchronously to asynchronously. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so it, it was a, it was a great experience. Uh, but beyond, so I did have that experience. That was also, you know, a decade ago, <laughs> and since then <laughs> I've worked by myself. So you know, world's worst authority on on workplace sort of culture and interaction and how stuff has changed. Again, when I was doing this, it was before most of the tools that people use today even existed. So,
0: right? Do you think you would have started strategery if you weren't working remotely?
1: Oh yeah, I started strategery at well, I was still at Microsoft. Uh so and it was my goal for it to be my job. You know. Automatic was great for me because it was hard for them to, you know, not allow you to try to blog on the side, given that it was literally a company <laughs> about a blogging. blogging. Company. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then also, you know, it, it was a chance, you know, I wanted to move back to Taiwan, but uh my long-term plan all along was that Shrekery would be my job sort of in the long run. So uh yeah, so so it was it was it was actually made it more difficult in some ways because Mm-hmm. I didn't have the shortcut of showing up at work every day looking like I was working. Instead, like it, I felt a lot of tension because there was a strict policy you couldn't have a second job for understandable reasons, right? And so I wasn't monetizing And So when I did want to make Shetakery a paid product, I had to quit at, at Automatic. But even while I was still there was kind of blowing up and there was i could feel the tension like why is what is this guy doing is he doing anything
0: he seems to be like <laughs> spending a lot of time He's running really productive over here he can't possibly be doing anything over here well the reality
1: was i was actually pretty lucky because i was hired to be like a growth engineer like uh which really i i didn't know anything about i was not really qualified for for a team that a few weeks after i started changed what they were working on to work on something that was come, would come out many months or years in the future. And so I literally mm-hmm. had nothing to drive growth for. So I had like no <laughs> job. Uh, and w- so actually, I owe Matt a lot, Matt Moldweg, because I think he did kind of run interference for me a bit. And he, we did talk a lot, me and him I actually kind of worked with him directly uh, where, yeah. uh, you know, he would ask, you know, they're working different things. I wrote a couple of like, strategy documents for the company He claims that I was very, it was helpful and impactful. Maybe he's just making me feel better. But honestly, (laughs) it was incredibly stressful. I felt really bad because I didn't actually have a clear thing to do in the company that was measurable and seeable. And I also yeah. had this very visible blog that I was clearly posting on twice a week and was drawing a lot of attention. <laughs> and it was really, really st- – I felt really bad and, and stressful. At the same time, this thing was blowing up. And so I, 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 of course, wanted to keep working on it. So I was in a real rush to actually try to get out, not because I didn't like Automatic, I, I, uh, but because I just personally felt so conflicted. Uh, about these sort of two competing things.
0: You and Matt are in a great place. Uh, You had a a terrific interview on March 12th, 2020. I'll put that in the show notes as well. It's a pretty harrowing reread. Um, I read it before we came on to record here. The intro, you're talking about Tom Hanks getting COVID, the NBA shutting down the night before, really took me back uh, to March 2020, which is not something I necessarily wanted to do, but- um, while I have you world's least reliable narrator on this topic so what comes to mind when you start to imagine like what the future of remote work might look like what it should look like do you think we're moving to a hybrid model or you know the com the, there's a commercial real estate aspect to this and there's also like broader social concerns that will probably factor into at least the the impact this has on society. I don't necessarily know that any individual business has a responsibility to to think about like broader society as they make these choices. But just with that general question as a starter, what are you most interested in over the next couple of years here as we all figure this out? I mean, that's a wide ranging
1: question. I think from a micro perspective, there is a situation right now where tech is going through a lot of layoffs. Uh, I think there is, going to be increased pressure on tech companies uh, in part because of Twitter being very Mm -hmm. visible, cutting a huge portion of the workforce and still functioning. And there's going to be a lot of questions like, wow, do you really need all these workers? And so I think there's going to be, there's a real shift in sort of bargaining power to companies away from workers. And from a management perspective, of course you'd rather people in the office. Right. And so, you know, the, the, and so I think in general, that's why you see the news like the snap news that you reference. And you're probably going to see it from other companies, a real pushback sort of in this direction. So that's sort of number one. Number two, I do worry on behalf of workers that remote work is one of those things that is great for a couple of years. Then you look back in a couple of decades, you're like, ah, oh, maybe that wasn't so great after all. <laughs> it's it's, you know, if you're going to actually implement the processes and the culture. Of effectively managing remote work, then it's like, well, why should I hire the engineer somewhere else in the US? I could just hire an engineer in India, or I could hire an engineer yeah. in some other sort of lower cost market. And, you know, I think that's an underappreciated long-term risk for a lot of these folks that are very agitated in favor of sort of re- remote work now. And I think the analogy here is globalization that hit the blue collar class and we sort of just talked about now it, it's a it's a risk for the white collar class so it, it's happening in conjunction with this AI bit that is sort of automating arguably some of these functions and if you're getting to this more processes like at what point is it not just hire a worker in India but just have AI do it right like like there there's mm-hmm. so that that's definitely a, a, a macro risk I do think there's a potential real upside to the extent that we're shifting talent and high-paying jobs and ecosystems out of just a few core areas like New York and San Francisco, Los Angeles, whatever, into broader areas. That's probably a good thing, you know, just sort of socially and 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 you know, diversifying the economy internally right. to the U.S. to to an extent. But all these are there. There's some really big questions that are raised here. I mean, what do you think? I mean, you you have more recent experience in the workplace than I do.
0: Yeah, it, I find it interesting because it's an intersection of two big themes that I think will probably recur throughout the decade. Like, I, I think, number one, there's this collective realization that reliance on technology as a substitute for in-person interaction can be a mistake. And, I mean, we've talked about it a bunch on Sharp Tech, even just the last couple months a bunch of different sectors in society you can see that like we can stay connected to professional and social networks simply by sitting at home and sending emails but like the efficiencies gained there aren't coming without a cost and so i think even as a young lawyer like it helped to be in the same conference room as a partner as opposed to just slacking back and forth and making one or two phone calls to him every day. Like if you could just walk up to somebody and ask them, you just learn a lot more. And I think if anything, it's more important for young people than the more experienced people in a business to be in the office. And the other thing that I find interesting about all of it is like another theme we've seen, if you want to understand the impact of certain policy choices, like you have to look at them from a holistic perspective and consider some of the secondary effects. And obviously some of that's always been true, but like with remote work, it may be more affordable for individual businesses to shift to remote work and reduce some of their commercial real estate footprint. But what does that do to like an economy in a big city? And what does it mean for society if a bunch of privileged people are working from home and everyone else is running around outside in the service economy. Like I don't really like the idea of that stratified version of society. Um, it's sort of what we were living with for a couple of years. Yeah, there, I was say, I, I, mean,
1: I think it's really interesting to consider would sort of lockdown policies or school closures or whatever, you know, there was an extent where the, the people that sort of dominate the narrative in the media were all able to work at home. And there's a lot of folks that were, you know, quote unquote, essential workers that were out and about. And, you know, had to leave their kids to fend for themselves and figure out Zoom because they had no choice in the matter. But also their voice was not very prominent in sort of the debate about this sort of stuff. And, and on right. one hand, you can look at tech and say, look, tech was the only industry like tech kept the economy running during the pandemic. You could also back up and say, if we didn't have this tech, maybe we would have moved forward much more quickly. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have even been a debate because we wouldn't have had any choice. I mean, that's what's happened in – there's been pandemics, right? There was a pandemic mm-hmm. of probably similar mortality in like 1957 or so, which no one remembers. A lot of people died, but we just kept trucking. There was a recession, but sort of just kept, kept trucking through because we had no choice. That was, that was the way sort of stuff worked.
0: Yeah, well, and I just think about my own life. I like interacting with the outside world. Like I, I liked going to the office every day. When I, as soon as we were allowed to go back into the office during the pandemic, I was there every day because it was just better than sitting around in my house. Now, flip side of this, I'm a giant hypocrite as well because I also over the last year or so have taken advantage of the work-from-home model and have learned how to incorporate exercise into my day. And I'm just like, in general, a lot healthier this way. And I think a lot of people, a lot of young people, feel better about their professional lives when they have a little bit more flexibility and don't have to spend like 90 minutes commuting back and forth to a job every day. And that's important to factor in as well. I mean, I, almost everyone my age prefers to be working from home than working from the office. So I was sort of the the weirdo outlier, like among the associates well, I, of my firm. I,
1: I, I like how you are still classifying yourself as a young person. Um, I'm not sure how long oh, you can carry I, that. Yeah, in. It
0: might be. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to cling to that as long as I can. But that's
1: point well taken. The young versus old thing, I think, is applicable to companies as well right? Like the, the older a company is, and if it has an established business model, like say a Google or a Facebook, um, I mean, theoretically snap, but you know, we'll, we'll throw them in there. You know, mm-hmm. the, the easier it is to have people, cause there's sort of like, no, there's jobs that need to be done. You know what those jobs are and there's measurable outcomes as to whether the jobs are done or not. Like that lends itself to, to sort of remote work. If you're a startup, like there are examples of startups that are fully distributed. I think GitLab is one of the most popular ones. But there's a reason everyone goes to the same few examples of successful remote, remote startups. Because there yes. is some aspect of when you're figuring stuff out, when processes are not clearly defined, w- because you can't afford to sort of become very structured and regular because you're still trying to achieve product market fit. Like when you're in that, you know, go back to the TSMC example, when you have to be super flexible and figure stuff out, it's really beneficial to have everyone in the same spot. When you get to a spot where you know exactly what you need to do and you just need to reproduce it, then you could be Intel and have fabs all over the world that are the exact same. And that tension and trade-off, I think, you know, that young versus old isn't just an employee thing, which I think is a very correct and astute observation by you. I think it's probably also a company thing.
0: Yeah, well, um, I think what's most interesting to me is how unresolved all of these questions are going forward, and we're all sort of gonna, we're we're all sort of going to figure it out together. And um, I don't know what the what the right answers are because I look at my own life and I am happier with my current setup. I just have to build in certain like. I have to be very proactive in the same way that automatic was. I have to build in opportunities to interact with the outside world. Because if you're just sitting around and, and this like there's the loneliness epidemic that has been in the news recently where people just aren't seeing other humans as often as they once did. And that's a big problem. And if you're just sitting around, you may feel connected, but you often look around and you're just like moderately depressed (laughs) and like it, and I have to be very careful to not fall into that trap. And I, I am, I don't know whether you've changed your, your work from home habits over the last 10 years. Have you developed any like skills and and tips? Well, for sure.
1: One thing that I did for a while, have like a separate place to go work because I think Mm -hmm. it, it is, there's just a lot, particularly when my kids were younger, it's just challenging to be there, but not be there. You know, yeah. to to an extent, and so that was you know I'm back at home now, but in part that's because everyone else is gone more often, right? So like I think just I'm sort of more more on my own in that regard, and that that's definitely a real challenge. I think it's just you can your your partner and your kids can understand intellectually that dad's busy right now, but it, 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 like, there's an emotional aspect where he's just right over there. I right? go, I can't just, just <laughs> pop in and ask him. And, you know, at least for me, I get so, when I'm writing, I, I, I'm so locked in. I'm like catatonic to everyone around me. And if mm-hmm. I get knocked out of that, it takes me a couple of hours to get back into it. So people, now, you know, when, when one of my updates shows up like four hours late, I probably got knocked <laughs> out of it. And I just, it took me a while to sort of lock back in, or I never could lock in in the first place. I had too much going on. So that's definitely one thing that's at a uh, another thing it goes back to like the cigar club bit, right? Like you need yeah. some sort of, I agree, social interaction, I think in real life outside of just sort of online. And I didn't fully appreciate to your point how sort of I don't know if depressed is the right word, but but lacking like what a hole mm-hmm. I had in my overall psyche and happiness. By having insufficient, this is particularly the case when I came back to Taiwan, I was really starting to checkery and, you know, like that, I had friends online, I had group chats and things on those lines, but I didn't really have any interaction outside of my family and and extended family. And that's not, that's not healthy at all. And I didn't appreciate how unhealthy it was until I sort of got out of it. But uh, yeah, yeah. so I mean, those would be the two big things is you, you might. You might need your own place that's separate, physically separate, and I completely agree. You need something regular to give you physical, you know, interaction with with folks independent of your family. Your family's great, right. not saying your family's bad, but it's just for for your sort of own mental health.
0: Yeah, I mean, depression aside, it it can also just put a ceiling on how happy and fulfilled you might be if you're not getting out and, you know, talking to other humans beyond your little pod there. Um, and as far as the the family stuff, it, it, that has been a struggle my entire career outside of the two years I was working in a law office because I was a writer and now I'm like podcasting. And so I'll be sitting at my computer and it's really hard for my wife, or sometimes if I'm working by my parents, like nobody can really accept that I'm working and like just <laughs> give me space uh, because they see me on like Twitter every now and then, and they're like, "You're not, you're just like sitting there hanging out," and which might be true. Um, it, yeah, I know that's the that's the other problem. <laughs> but look. Um, we need email questions for Wednesday night's show. So email us at email at sharptech.fm. And I would love make sure to on hear...
1: that email address, it's not email at sharppsychology.fm. So <laughs> yeah,
0: this is armchair psychology ends with this episode. But I would love to hear what other questions people have about remote work. Um, and we can keep this conversation going in the next episode and uh, hit on anything else there's a lot going on out there we got a question about amazon recently i want to talk about them um for now though ben listeners could give the gift of stratechery and we will keep this going later in the week yeah, you can
1: call it give the gift of sharp tech remember it's all it's all it's all a bundle go to your show notes right. there's a link there yeah happy holidays to in advance to all the people that you bless with with, with, with this sharp psychology content <laughs>
0: Santa Claus was the original bundler. So we're just following in his footsteps. We'll be back later in the week. Talk to you later.